I want to begin tonight with a contrast. The New Testament closes with a revelation while the Old Testament ends with a nightmare. Zedekiah was one of the last kings of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 25 tells his story. You remember Zedekiah, he had sinned against God and he had angered the enemy that God had raised up against him. Babylon was God's tool of judgment on Zedekiah's kingdom. And when the invaders breached the walls of Jerusalem, Zedekiah tried to escape, but he didn't get far. He was captured near Jericho and he was chained in bronze fetters. You see, the Babylonians, they wanted to humiliate their defeated foe. They wanted to rub it in, make him an example. And so with Zedekiah standing there, the king of Babylon executed his sons. Can you imagine? Then with that horrific scene fresh in his mind, the king of Babylon took a hot poker and he plucked out Zedekiah's eyes. Thus, the last lingering image carved into the king's psyche, the, light, the last sight he saw before the lights went out for good was the bloody slaughter of his own boys. This scarred Zedekiah. You can only imagine. The sight of his son squirming in agony was indelibly stamped on his soul. This is the kind of trauma from which a person never recovers. And yet Zedekiah's nightmare was no more earth-shattering, no more life-changing than John's revelation. The apostle, he's an old man. He's doing time on a rock island. As the last disciple standing, he's the only person on earth eligible to add to the canon of Scripture. And thus, just before John closes his eyes for the last time, God communicates to him a revelation. And it moves him emotionally and physically. John writes what he sees and he sends it to the churches. God intends for revelation, this book, to be the last lingering image burned into the collective psyche of his church. Zedekiah never shook his nightmare and God wants the church to never take its eyes off of John's revelation. It will shape our souls. It will inspire our faith. Revelation is one of the few Bible books that begin with the title, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word translated revelation is the term apocalypse. In our culture, it's become synonymous with cataclysm and destruction and impending doom. But to the Greeks, it meant simply an unveiling or an uncovering. Imagine walking into the art gallery and a sculpture by a famous artist lies there under a canvas. At the appropriate moment, the curator, he rips off the fabric, revealing the beauty and the genius of the sculptor's work. Well, this is the revelation. Jesus Christ is alive and well, but we don't see his excellence because he's hidden behind a heavy canvas that separates the spiritual realm from the tangible world. And yet here in Revelation, John is going to rip away that veil. He is going to reveal Jesus in all of his splendor. I like how Paul Mello translates the opening words of verse 1. He says, the official portrait of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the official oil painting of the United States president. Did you know the tradition began in 1796? 
At the time, several artists attempted to paint George Washington, but it was Gilbert Stuart who painted a worthy likeness. Well, when it comes to the official portrait of Jesus Christ, God got it right the very first time when he called on John, the disciple whom Jesus loved to be its artist. Now remember, before we're done, John is going to paint a whole array of provocative details. We're going to talk about falling stars and beasts and hailstones and plagues and marks and the whore of Babylon. And we can get sidetracked by it all. It's important to remember the theme of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book is not about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ. As one author puts it, the theme isn't 666. It's holy, holy, holy. You see, the point of Revelation is not just the unleashing of judgment. It's the unveiling of Jesus. And this is what God wants to permanently burn into our perspective. Well, John writes of the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. Or in other words, here's what's next. Here's what's coming up on God's agenda. Now understand what John had already seen. He was Jesus' cousin, Mary's nephew. He and Jesus had grown up together. John was there when Jesus began his ministry. John saw Jesus walk on the water and multiply the lunch and heal a blind man and supernaturally locate the fish. You know, John writes in another place, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Jesus was the word. He was the meaning of life. He was with God before time began. And then he took on flesh and blood and he came as a man. He revealed the Almighty's humility. And John witnessed this first revelation of Jesus. And of course John was there when the Roman executioners nailed Jesus to a piece of wood. He was also there three days later when news came that the grave was empty. And for 40 days, John was there and spent time with the risen Christ. And John was there on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended back to heaven. He saw his Lord return to glory, victorious, an acceptable sacrifice, a faithful high priest. Yes, John was there for it all. And John did exactly what he was told. He and his fellow disciples, they went into all the world telling people about Jesus, what they'd seen and heard and touched and handled. But now John is alone. The other disciples are all dead. Jesus has been gone for 60 years. And John is wondering what's next. What's next for him? What's next for Christianity? You see, Jesus had come preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was there when Jesus launched this kingdom. And now it's running headlong into the kingdoms of man. Christians are being attacked by the Roman Empire. Emperor Nero had already crucified Peter and he had Paul beheaded. Others were on the chopping block as well. What's next for this kingdom? You see, this is why John needed a new revelation. A fresh perspective. He knows that Jesus is no longer a bloody corpse. His sacrificial work is finished. He's risen and ascended. But what's next? And the answer, the revelation. And Jesus sent and signified it 
by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Now notice Jesus sent and signified this message. Signify can mean, the word signify can mean to express by signs. This word has led some Bible teachers to see this book as a message encoded with signs and symbols. You see, when John received this prophecy, he was a prisoner of Rome. The Romans weren't too fond of manifestos that predicted the coming of kings and kingdoms that would threaten to usurp Roman rule. And thus, to avoid censorship, John's letter employed signs and symbols. You could call this book a cryptogram. A coded message. Its symbolism enabled it to slip past Roman security and yet still be understood by its Christian readers. And what better code to use than Old Testament symbols? We're going to find this book is chalked with Old Testament symbols. In fact, the key to interpreting the book of Revelation is to familiarize yourself with Hebrew idioms and imagery. Of the book's 404 verses, 278 quote Old Testament references. That's 70%. There's another 360 Old Testament inferences. It's been said the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. And that's especially true with Revelation. Verse 3 attaches a special promise to this book. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy And keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. You see, any attempt to read and obey this book will be met with a blessing. Though parts of Revelation are tough to interpret, God has always rewarded a sincere effort. You see, he wants this book especially to be branded on our hearts. It's what's next. John continues his introduction. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace to you and peace. And here's the common New Testament greeting, grace and peace. But not only does John greet the members of these churches, so does the triune God. God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus all issue a greeting. The revelation is from him who is and who was and who is to come. Realize God doesn't just have lots of time. God dwells outside of time. He occupies the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. God sees the end from the beginning. Think of it. God was. Our God is the God of history. In fact, history is his story. But God also is. He he is always in the moment. I love Psalm 46 verse 1. It calls him a very present help in trouble. And then God also is to come. His presence, his purpose, his power will fill up our future. A central theme of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. But understand, God is always coming. To a troubled marriage, he comes. To a heartbroken teenager, he comes. To a depressed housewife, he comes. To an out-of-work dead, he comes. To a believer struggling with doubts, he comes. To the rebel on the run, God comes. This is God's favorite posture. He's coming. 
And John also brings greetings from the Holy Spirit, from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, admittedly, this is difficult terminology. We know from the rest of Scripture that there's only one Holy Spirit. He's an individual. He's not seven different spirits. This seems to be a reference to the sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11, verse 2 gives us some insight here. It tells us how the Spirit empowered Jesus, and I quote, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven-fold ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is how the Holy Spirit works through us, the church. He supplies wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He is the Spirit of the Lord. And last but not least, the readers of Revelation are greeted from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. In all that Jesus did and said, he represented his father faithfully. He is the faithful witness. Jesus is the truth teller. Hey, this was a true no-spin zone. Jesus gave it straight. He's the faithful witness. He always speaks the truth. Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. Understand, his human body was first to undergo the metamorphosis that you and I will one day undergo. Paul describes it. This corruptible body must put on incorruption, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Jesus was first to escape decay. Now his resurrection gives the same hope to all his followers. Jesus is the truth teller. He's the grave robber, and he's the ultimate ruler. John calls him the ruler over the kings of the earth. And this was important to the believers in Asia who received this letter. At the time, Christianity was an oppressed minority. And yet the revelation received by John and passed on to the churches was so convincing, those who read it knew that it was only a matter of time before the rulers of this world bowed before King Jesus, that he will ultimately reign. Oh, Jesus, he's the truth teller. He's the grave robber. He's the ultimate ruler. And he's also the soul lover and the sin washer. John writes in verse 5, to him who loved us. Jesus loved us at his first revelation and he loves us now. And he'll love us forever. So much so, he washed us from our sins in his own blood. Notice Jesus didn't offer a proxy sacrifice as the Old Testament priest did. It wasn't the blood of a lamb, or of a goat. He washed us from our sins in his own blood. And he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Notice Jesus is also the glory sharer and the priest maker. Our destiny is to rule with King Jesus. He'll end the long-running revolt of Satan, and he'll strip the devil of all his authority, and then he'll share it with us. And he'll make us priests as well as kings. There'll be a priestly cast in heaven for all eternity. The followers of Jesus, you and I, will enjoy unrivaled proximity and access to God. We'll be his priests. It's interesting, like the Holy Spirit, Jesus also has seven functions. He's the truth teller and the grave robber and the ultimate ruler. 
and the soul lover and the sin washer and the glory sharer and the priest maker. And how should we respond? Oh, John shouts it out. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We should praise him. We should shout amen. It means I agree. When John thought it all through, he couldn't help himself. He shouted amen. Some of you might remember Anna's daddy. I miss Anna's daddy. In a stiff Caucasian bred crowd like our own, Anna's daddy stood out. He wasn't really bashful at all. He wasn't afraid to express his approval. I'd be preaching and make a statement that he knew was true and he'd shout, Amen! The truth moved him. Oh, we all need to be moved by the truth. And one truth is certain. Jesus is not done moving. For John writes in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Jesus is coming back to this earth. Now, technically, there are two comings, two second comings of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus comes in the clouds for his church. It's a covert operation. The lost world won't know what hit them. Instantly, you and I, believers, will be gone. But here Jesus comes with clouds. And every eye will see him. This is an in-your-face coming. He'll also return to settle scores and judge all wickedness. And we're going to talk more about this later. But Jesus comes in the clouds at the rapture. But Jesus comes with the clouds when he surprises the world and when he brings judgment to the earth, he'll come in the clouds for his church. He'll come to judge this earth with the clouds on the final day. He'll touch down on the Mount of Olives to end man's rebellion and to establish his own political kingdom. And notice the addendum in verse 7. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And this refers to Zechariah 12, verse 10, and the Jews. It's a prophetic irony. In the end, the Jews will realize their mistake. You know, they'll, every eye will see him whom they have pierced. They'll realize they crucified their Savior. It'll hit them. They wounded their healer. And that's only one of the reactions on that final day. Since Jesus ascended to heaven, he's been sitting at God's right hand. He's finished his work of salvation and his spirit has been busy gathering in his church. But once the church is caught up, God's wrath will come down. A Christ-rejecting world will be punished. You know, today folks around us might mock this idea, but they won't escape it. I like what Vance Havner once wrote. He said, some of us get laughed at by the swivel chair experts in eschatology. But when God splits the skies and the stars fall and the moon turns to blood and men cry for rocks and mountains to fall on them, it's going to be pretty hard for some of us to keep from saying, I told you so. Jesus came to, to earth the first time to pardon but he is coming a second time to punish. 
The Lamb of God was laid on the altar. But this Lamb is also the lion who will roar. It's a jungle out there. Because of man's sin and rebellion, the Garden of Eden is now overgrown and overrun with weeds and full of dangerous predators. But Jesus is still the king of the jungle. He will return. He'll flex his muscles and fulfill his will. It'll be an I told you so kind of day. Right now, the skeptics might scoff. If he's alive, where is he? But on that day, every eye will see him. Only then it'll be too late. And this is why John writes in verse 7, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. They'll mourn, but they were warned. They just never took heed. For many people, history will have an unhappy ending. John sighs himself, verse 7, Even so, amen. And here Jesus interjects, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters in the Greek alphabet. Jesus is in essence saying, I am the A to Z. He is the beginning and he is the end and he's all that's in between. And then Jesus takes that title that was earlier attributed to the Father. He takes it for himself. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Obviously, Jesus is making the claim to be God. He's equal to the Father. They hold the same exalted name and traits and attributes. Verse 9. Now I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Around 90 AD, a second wave of persecution washed over the church. An emperor named Domitian decided to follow in Nero's footsteps. This time, John was arrested, and he was sentenced to be boiled alive in a vat of oil. But God had other plans for John. God intervened, and miraculously, John survived the ordeal. And since Domitian couldn't kill him, he had him banished to this rock island of Patmos. Patmos is an island in the Aegean Sea. It's 10 miles long by 6 miles wide by 15 miles off the coast of Turkey. It's barren, rocky, it's desolate. In the first century, it held a penal colony where Roman prisoners were sent to do hard labor. Patmos was the first century Alcatraz. Now understand, John is 90 plus years old. He's now frail and feeble. He has scars over most of his body, souvenirs he picked up from his brush of death in the boiling oil. And now he's pounding a hammer in a rock quarry. And John was not the only believer suffering under Domitian's reign of terror. All across the empire, Christians were being persecuted for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And it made John think. Remember to this point, all John had seen was the first revelation of Jesus. The Son of God became a baby. He came to earth through the lowest door. I mean, deity in a diaper? I mean, could God have made himself more vulnerable than to come as an infant? John knew Jesus had experienced all of our human limitations. He was God, and yet he had laid aside its perks. 
And Jesus came as a servant. He could have thrown his weight around. He could have intimidated us into compliance. Instead, he overwhelmed us with grace. His mercy and his tenderness disarmed us. It slipped past our defenses and our hearts were won by his love. And to bear our punishment, Jesus made himself defenseless. He laid his back bare to take our stripes. But now John has some stripes of his own. Ever seen a burn victim? Imagine John covered with scars. Oh, he's thankful that Jesus has won his heart. But who's going to win this war? John knows he's in a fight. It's a deadly battle. It's good and evil. It's God and Satan. They're slugging it out. It's a jungle out there. John believed in Jesus, but he needed more than a servant to model or even a savior to rely on. For John to endure these hardships, he and his friends needed the hope of a conquering king. John and the persecuted church needed a second revelation. The unveiling of an exalted glorified Christ they needed a savior who was also heavyweight champ once there was a middle-aged woman with an incurable disease she checked into the hospital her days were numbered one night she had a vision a visit from her guardian angel he told her that she would live 30 more years she was so excited she thought oh my while I'm still in the hospital, you know, I'm, if I'm going to live 30 more years, I, I might as well get a little work done. I, I might as well live in style. i got 30 more years left. And so while she was in the hospital, she ordered a facelift and tummy tuck and some liposuction. Well, as she left the hospital, she was headed for a car, and suddenly she was hit by a truck. She died instantly. When she got to heaven, she looked up that guardian angel. She was so mad. She said, you told me I'd live 30 more years. The angel answered, well, yeah, but I didn't recognize you. <laughs> you know, I'm afraid this is most people's problem with Jesus. They, they don't see clearly the first revelation of our Lord. You know, over the years, artists have painted some pathetic portraits of Jesus. He's depicted as weak and frail. Other artists have him glowing in the dark. He's wearing pearly white robes and takes a sissified posture. He uses curlers in his hair. And he looks suspiciously effeminate. It's tragic. We have mistaken the guy who got angry at the Pharisees who took a whip and bounced the crooks from the temple as this gentle Jesus, meek and mild, realized the real Jesus was a carpenter who worked with his hands and liked to fish. He was a man's man. He was a blue-collar guy. He pounded nails before the days of power tools, and he sure wasn't afraid of a fight. And if Christians today have confused what Jesus was like when he lived here among us, they have no clue as to what he's like today and how he'll appear when he returns. And this is why we too need a second revelation. Certainly Jesus is still a man, but he is a glorified man. Jesus' humility was temporary. He is now back on his throne, but with the new authority that he won on earth. 
Realize the person that we serve and follow no longer walks on water. That's just kid stuff to him now. Today he rides on clouds. He rules in heaven and he commands an army and he doles out justice as well as mercy. This is the revelation that John received on Patmos and he sends to the seven churches. What's next? It's a glorified Christ. John recalls when this revelation came to him. Verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. It was a Sunday. You know, it's interesting. Already the early church was living in the wake of the resurrection. You know, Jews had services and worship times on the Sabbath. But Christians met on the first day of the week. The day that Jesus rose. Sundays were treated like a mini Easter by the early Christians. The first church preached the cross, but they didn't leave Jesus there. Jesus rose to reign. And this revelation, after this revelation, they all knew to live in the light of the exalted Christ. Well, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. In other words, he was dialed in, man. He was logged on. He was worshiping. He was communing with God. When all of a sudden, he heard behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. At his first revelation, Jesus launched God's kingdom spiritually. And he will finish what he started. But he'll also bring his kingdom to earth in power and in glory. He is the beginning and the end. And you see, this shapes our duty as Christians. For we now are part of this spiritual kingdom. That's still serving and saving. And we're called to help. But we will win over temptation and opposition in our lives only when we know what's next. For ultimately, all wrongs will be righted. Good will triumph. God's people will win in the end. The triumphant Christ is next. This is the theme of the book of Revelation. And this should be the motto of our lives. And then Jesus said to John, What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list of churches in Asia, in first century Asia. There were many more. But Jesus chose these seven churches for a reason. We'll talk about that next time. Here in verse 12, the plot thickens. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. John is about to describe Jesus, but before we read it, note where Jesus hangs out. He is in the midst of the lampstands. Now later we're going to learn that the seven lampstands or the seven branch menorah that he sees is a symbol for the seven churches. In the Old Testament, the priest was in charge of lighting and tending to the menorah. And likewise, the church is the New Testament temple. Jesus is our priest, and thus he works among the churches to keep us filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. He keeps our light shining brightly and purely. What's next in God's kingdom is Jesus. But it's interesting to see where he hangs out in the church. And this is why I'm always telling you that if you love Jesus, you'll love his church. 
The church is where the action is. Where is Jesus working in the world today? Where will you find Jesus hanging out? In his church. He doesn't promise that you'll find him at the Rotary Club. Or at the Little League. Or at the PTA. Or at the Political Action Committee. Or wherever else you might be involved. Jesus prefers to work in and through his church. He told his disciples where two or three are gathered together in my name. I am there in the midst of them. Oh, John sees Jesus. He's still a man. Son of man speaks of his humanity. But John recognizes him as only like the son of man. For his visage is now different. The revelation that John now sees doesn't stack up with the Jesus that he had heard and seen and his hands had handled. This is now the warrior and ruler, not just the servant and the savior. John is about to describe for us the king of the jungle. And he starts with what Jesus wears to work. John says he's clothed with a garment down to the feet. This is significant because commoners and peasants, they wore knee-length robes. Only a king's robe drugged the ground. At his first revelation, Jesus hung naked on a cross, but now he's clothed in royal robes. And he's girded about the chest with a golden band or a priestly breastplate. Jesus is now king and priest. You know, in ancient Israel, there was no such thing as king and priest. Israel observed a separation of church and state. The king was forbidden to be the priest. But Jesus abolished that separation clause. He rules on God's throne and he works in God's temple, the church. He is both king and priest. And then verse 14, John describes him. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Years ago, I had an album cover that tried to replicate this portrait of Jesus. In my opinion, the result was grotesque. I mean, I don't think we should try to envision this portrait literally. Again, the key is to see Jesus through Old Testament eyes. And for starters, Jesus' hair isn't a, a bleach job. It's not graying. White speaks of his moral and his spiritual purity. His eyes certainly aren't bloodshot. Like a flame of fire, that speaks of his eyes, their searing scrutiny, their searchability. You know, Jesus doesn't look past you. As if you don't matter. He cares about you deeply. He doesn't look at you as if he's sizing you up to figure you out. He already knows you perfectly. And he doesn't look to you as if he needs anything from you. No, Jesus is sufficient in and of himself. But Jesus does look through you. His stare penetrates and uncovers the real you. You can't hide. You can't play the hypocrite under his gaze. And Jesus' brass feet, brass feet. That doesn't mean he has a lead foot, by the way. Brass is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron was strong, but it rusted. Copper kept its shine, but it bent. 
Brass was a mixture of strength and endurance. And thus, Jesus, when he puts his foot down, he means it. It's emphatic. And the voice of Jesus, oh, that voice, it's like the sound of many waters, literally like a waterfall. I'll never forget standing at the bottom of Niagara Falls. At the bottom of Niagara Falls, you can scream into the ear of the person next to you, and it doesn't even register. Jesus had spoken to John while he was on earth. For 60 years now, John had heard the still, small voice, the whispers of the Holy Spirit. But now this is different from either. The lion roars. Jesus' voice today is like a waterfall. It drowns out all other voices. Oh, today, we're surrounded by competing opinions, media blares, talk shows, and pundits, and blogs, and spin. But when Jesus speaks, he muffles all other influences. His voice is like a waterfall. It gets our attention. And in his right hand, Jesus holds seven stars. Jump ahead to verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The lampstands are the seven churches, the stars are their angels. Now it could be that every church has its own guardian angel. And if that's true, I have no doubt we work our guy overtime. But the Greek word, translated angel, it literally means messenger. And so some folks translate the term pastors, which is even more problematic. Because does that mean your pastor is like an angel? Oh, that's a stretch. You're thinking, not hardly, not our pastor. But no, pastors are the messengers of Jesus to his church. And in that sense, they're angelic. Either way, whether stars or angels or pastors, the point is, is that they're both in the Lord's right hand. Notice that. And this is the hand that speaks of authority. Thus, any authority vested in the church comes from Jesus. And every pastor needs to remember that. That we are all accountable to that right hand. And what's up with Jesus' breath? My, oh my. Verse 16 tells us. Out of his mouth... When a sharp two-edged sword. Even people with just a little bit of Bible under their belt recognize this imagery. The two-edged sword is the scripture itself. It's sharp and incisive. It cuts coming and going. The Bible opens us up and lays us bare and fillets our motives. Jesus always works powerfully through his word. That's why there's a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And then finally, John describes Jesus' overall countenance. It was like the sun shining in its strength. Eyeballing the glorified Christ was like looking directly into the sun. His glory blinds you to every other interest. John writes, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I remember on earth, Jesus and John, they hung out together. I mean, they were fishing buds. But now John sees Jesus and his knees wobble. He hits the deck. The exalted Lord has taken his breath away. John is speechless. He's motionless. 
I'm sure that when President Obama plays basketball with his aides, it's a lot of fun. But in the final seconds of a game, trust me, nobody's going to hack the president. If he's on a breakaway, you'll just let him have the basket. He's the president. You don't risk injuring the commander-in-chief. Even if he's your pal, you treat a president differently. And guys, the same should be true of how we treat Jesus. At his first coming, we learn that Jesus wants to be our friend. Indeed, he does. But this second revelation reminds us that he is not like any other friend you have. Don't call Jesus your homie. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. Jesus expects and deserves our respect. John collapsed at his feet and worshiped him. And notice Jesus' reply to John. It's so beautiful. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. John, Jesus picks John up and encourages him. Jesus' clothes and his hair and his eyes and his feet and his mouth are all now very different than at his first revelation. But there's one thing about Jesus that hasn't changed, and that is his heart. The heart of Jesus remains the same. And that's when he says, And I have the keys of Hades and of death. If you're concerned about heaven and hell and what happens to you after you die, Jesus is the go-to guy. He has the keys. Buddha, Mohammed, Oprah, they have no say in the matter. Jesus has the keys to the afterlife, to the end of life. He alone decides when you die and where you go. John closes the chapter with a helpful outline of the book of Revelation. The angel says to him, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Now the things which you've seen, this is chapter 1, what he's just written. It's the revelation, it's the vision that John received of the risen glorified Christ. The things which are we'll discuss in chapters 2 and 3. Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches. You see, John was living in the church age, and it has now lasted some 2,000 years. The things which are the church. And then the rest of the book, chapters 4 to 22, are the things which will take place after this. For once the church is caught away, then sweeping judgments will pave the way for the ultimate triumph. Of King Jesus. So what's next in God's plan? (laughs) Jesus is next. He's the A to Z. He's the beginning and the end. Let this revelation burn into your heart. Look to the glorified Christ. And you'll find all that you need for victory. And there we have Revelation chapter 1.